At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Today, we invite you to join us in our message series and dive deeper into what God's Word has for us today. If you got a Bible with you, I'm going to invite you to open it with me to uh, Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible, maybe you have a phone with you. While you do that, uh, let me introduce to you myself. I don't know how to say that right. Whatever. Um, <laughs> For those of you that don't know me, my name is Jacob. Uh, I have the privilege of uh, pastoring our Farmington Hills campus here at Woodside, Uh, but I get to be with you guys this morning, and I'm excited about that. We love you here at Royal Oak, and so we're excited to just be with you to open God's Word, to study it together uh, this morning. And so um, what I want to do just to begin uh, is I want to actually read the passage we're going to look at this morning, and then just pray again over our time in the Word, and then we're just going to go, okay? We just I got a lot to cover, so we're just going to go. So, uh, let me, let me, we're in Luke 9, 10 through 17 this morning. So, the, uh, Luke writes, On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done, and he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. They said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we're going to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up in heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave it to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. Let me pray for us. Father, we are grateful this morning that you are the God that we just described in that song that you're a God who makes a way where there's no way. That you're a God who is faithful to his promises. That you're a God who enacts miracles, even like the one we just read. God, you're amazing. And even beyond that, you're a God that has revealed yourself through your word that we might know you. You're not distant or somewhere else. You've declared who you are. You declared the work that you're doing in redeeming this world. You've given us your word so that we might come to know you, to be satisfied in you, to know your great glory, your great reality, to know your kingdom, to know our Savior, how much you've given us, oh God, we are so grateful for this morning. And now as we come to your word, we pray that you would use it to satisfy our hearts and souls with you. Would you, by the power of your spirit, reveal more of the truth of Jesus to us? Help us to trust more deeply in his word and his work. Help us to live life the way he taught us to live. Help us to grow, to be the people that you desire us to be, not just individually, but even collectively as your church. Oh, Heavenly Father, would you move among us? Create even in us a greater hunger for more of you in our lives through this time, we pray. And I ask this in Jesus' good name. Amen. When you're hungry, who do you look to for provision? 
We've been in this series, if you're just joining us, we've been in this series called Soul Food, where we've been looking at uh, the meals of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke and reflecting on what they revealed to us about who Jesus is, what his message was, what he was about. Much of Jesus's ministry can be seen in the meals and which he engaged, who he engaged them with, how he went about doing it. And together as a church family, we've been reflecting a little bit on meals and their nature, not only in Jesus, but even in our own lives. And, you know, one of the things that strikes me about the reality of meals, of the regular eating of food that we engage in together, is meals are a constant reminder that we are dependent creatures. That you and I do not have the ability in and of ourselves to sustain our lives in any sort of way without the engagement and consumption of things beyond ourselves, right? We have to have food to live. Food is intricate to life. You know how we know this? How many of you have ever been hangry? You know you miss one meal and like your emotions are out of whack, your life is out of whack, suddenly everything feels off. Right, like we're created to sustain our lives by the physical consumption of food. And naturally, in the course of our days, we have these moments where we recognize our hunger and the first thing we look to is, where am I going to eat? Or what am I going to eat? I I tend to be a one-track-minded person. I don't know if you, my wife, has the ability to hold multiple things in her mind and practice and multiply. I can't do that. I can do one thing at one time. I'm not even sure I do that very well. But regularly through the course of my day, I forget to eat. I know some of you are shocked by that, right? You're like, how does that, right? Like, so I'll often find myself in the middle of my workday, sometimes going, oh yeah, I probably should eat something, right? Because I naturally start to feel hunger. And hunger reminds me I'm dependent on food and I need to get food to eat it and to provide for what I need. So when I ask the question, there's the physical sense. When you're hungry, Who do you look for or what do you look for for your provision? But I think that's also a deeper reality that's true of us as well. That although we are dependent on food to sustain our physical lives, that you and I are also dependent on something outside of ourselves to to sustain our spiritual lives. That meals are a reminder that we all look for provision for something beyond ourselves in order to give our life meaning or purpose. All of us, at some point or another in our lives, recognize the inability that we have just within ourselves to sustain any sort of long-term purpose, any sort of long-term meaning, any sort of long-term satisfaction. Go anywhere in the world and what you will find in any culture are narratives, stories, ideas, truths, where people are seeking to find something that brings meaning and purpose to their existence. All of us have a spiritual hunger, something that we're looking for to help sustain our purpose and meaning in life. We are created as dependent creatures. So when I ask the question, when you're hungry, who do you look for for your provision? Or what do you look for for your provision? Yeah, there's a physical sense, but there's also a spiritual sense. 
What gives your life meaning? What do you turn to when you find that ache in your soul that things aren't just lining up quite the way that you thought they would? What do you do when you find yourself wanting or suffering or struggling when you've lost that sense of identity or purpose or meaning or how to navigate the challenges of life? When spiritual hunger arrives, what do you turn or look to to engage with? Now, second question on top of that. So what do you look to to provide for your hungry? Is it working? Is it satisfying you? You know how when you eat a really, really good meal and you just feel full and satisfied, right? When your hunger is met, when you sit down, you feel that ache, you're starving. Finally, you eat some food and just for that moment, you have that, oh, all is right with the world. Do you have that spiritually? Do you have moments in your life where you're connected with God in such a way that you feel that sort of level of satisfaction? Where you feel full, like life is full and purpose and meaning are there. And if not, I want to invite you into the story that we're going to learn today. Because I think if you have that spiritual hunger, if you're desiring and looking for that meaning and satisfaction that we all ache for, what we're going to find today in our story is that Jesus is enough to fully satisfy you and everyone who comes to him. So with that said, let me jump in a little bit to our story this morning because we're gonna engage another meal with Jesus and we're gonna see some incredible realities about who he is, about what he's done and about what he can do for us. But in order to see those realities, I wanna set the context a little bit because Luke, the author of our gospel that we're studying, sets the context of this meal in a couple key ways. So if you got that Bible, if you're opening with me to Luke chapter nine, I want you to see what precedes the story we're gonna look at in Luke nine, one and two. This is what it says in verse one. It says, and he called the 12 together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Now jump down to verse six. And they, his disciples departed and went through the village, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. So one story that precedes the story we're going to look at is Jesus sends out his disciples on mission to proclaim his kingdom and to heal, to exercise demons, to do some incredible things. Now look at verse 7. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John, I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. The second story that precedes our passage is Herod, who's the ruler of Judea at the time, has some questions about who Jesus is. Like, what is this guy about? What's his ministry about? Why, why is he here? What's he, and he, he wants to know. So, so hold these two stories in mind, because they're going to be important as we unpack this. There's, a question, there's the reality of the disciples and the mission God's called them to in this, or Jesus has called them to in this passage, and these questions of Jesus's identity that sit in the background. Now, let's jump into the story that we're looking at in verse 10. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. 
So the disciples come back from their mission where they're healing, proclaiming the kingdom of God, kicking demons out of people, like doing incredible things. I imagine the disciples return with some incredible stories, right? Like you just have to imagine. They're like, what is going on? Like they're literally doing and seeing the ministry that Jesus did. They're now getting the opportunity to participate in. And so they come back to Jesus. And what's Jesus's first reaction with them? Hey, let's go okay and withdraw. Let's retreat a little bit and kind of regather ourselves. One of the incredible rhythms that we see in Jesus's life and how he trained his disciples is the regular work of engaging on mission for God, but then also retreating to refresh ourselves with God. This is, this is Jesus's rhythm. He would withdraw to be with God, and then he would go out and minister for God. And then he'd withdraw to be with God, and then he'd go out to minister for God. And he was training his disciples to do the same thing. If we're to live healthy, balanced lives, I think that's an important rhythm for us as well. There's times where we withdraw to be with God, and there's times in which we engage with God in the ministry and mission that he has called us to as his people. And so Jesus is withdrawing with his disciples. But something unique happens in the midst of his withdrawal. Look at verse 11. When the crowds learned it, they followed him. Now, I don't know about you. If I'm a disciple of Jesus and I was just out giving, doing all the work of ministry, working hard, casting demons out, healing people, I finally get a moment to kind of just take a breath. I'd be like, wait, who are those people? Like, why are they following us? right? I I mean, I would imagine I'd be a little bit tired out. I I do one day, like my Sunday afternoon, I always joke, I was just talking to my associate pastor Joel this morning, and I said, enjoy your preacher nap this afternoon. Because when I'm done on Sunday mornings, like I am done. Sunday afternoon, I hit a nap that I don't know if I sleep better than that the rest of the week, right? Because naturally, when we exert ourselves in anything that we do to a certain point, we naturally tire and we need to rest. And that's what Jesus is moving towards. And yet, he has this whole group of people that begin to interrupt his rest. And how does Jesus then respond to them? Look halfway through verse 11. And he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Jesus responds to this crowd by welcoming and inviting them in. And this is a key first point for us in understanding why Jesus is able to fully satisfy everyone who comes to him. Because one of the key realities of Jesus is that Jesus is never too tired to welcome those who seek him. He's never too tired to welcome those who seek him. The disciples likely are tired at this point. They're tanked out, but Jesus isn't. Jesus' response to the crowd that seek after him is to invite them in to say, hey, come. Luke actually uses this word welcome different than even the other gospel writers when they record this story. Most of them say that Jesus had compassion on the crowds. But Luke, like he does with most of the meals in his gospel, highlights not just Jesus's compassion, but his invitation. That the nature of Jesus was to invite people into relationship with him, to engage him, and that he never got tired of them. And what does he do right out of that? He speaks to them about the kingdom of God, and he continues to heal. One of the things and reasons why I think it's important for us to recognize the ability of Jesus to satisfy our spiritual hunger is that Jesus' posture towards us is one of invitation. 
It's always towards a posture of inviting us deeper into who he is, into our relationship with him. That his spirit towards us is to welcome sinners, sufferers, strugglers. Right? We've already seen this the last couple of weeks that you were here. We see Jesus feasting and engaging with the marginalized, the people on the outskirts of society, the people that other people got tired of, Jesus doesn't get tired of. Right? You, you have someone in your life that you get tired of. You can admit it. We all do. Right? You've got people in your life that you're like, okay, I, like, I've had enough. I'm done with you. Don't call me for a day. Right? Don't nudge the person next to you. That'd be rude. <laughs> but we all have it. Right? We all have it. Our society has it. Our society has people that we break down into categories to say they're not really worth our time. I remember listening to a prominent uh, a podcast several years ago on, on leadership. The guy was talking about leadership and how to be an effective leader. And one of the things he was telling people was, you got to categorize people and you got to determine who you give your time to. And if you're going to maximize your leadership potential, you should only give your time to people that will bring value to what you've been called to do. And I was like, thank God Jesus didn't do that. Because I'm not sure he'd give me the time of day. Like Jesus' heart disposition towards us is like, no, if you're struggling, if you're suffering, if you're forgotten, if you're overlooked, if you're in that place, hey, I'm here for you. Come, it's okay. I'm not gonna get tired of you, right? Jesus, Jesus doesn't get to a point in your life where he just says, I'm done. I'm done. See, I think somewhere in the back of our mind, we have this fear that because we struggle, there's going to be some moment that Jesus is like, You're, I'm out, I'm out, forget you. But I think what we see in the text is even in moments where he's withdrawn, he's still willing to welcome. He's still the savior. Like he says in Matthew, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest for I am gentle and lowly in heart and my yoke is easy and my burden is light. There isn't a moment where Jesus says enough. He invites you in, and it's why we, he has the ability to satisfy us. But even as Jesus invites this crowd in, there's suddenly a moment where a problem arises. Look at verse 12. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodgings and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. So a problem arises. Jesus is teaching. The crowds are coming to him. It's starting to get late in the day. And the disciples recognize in Jesus like, hey, um, what are we going to do about food? Like, there's a lot of people here. We're kind of in the middle of nowhere right now. Like, I don't know what we're supposed to do. So Jesus, I think it's time to kind of wrap up the teaching seminar and like send these people away so they can go home. They can get some dinner. They can find somewhere to stay tonight, get back to their houses or wherever they need to, right? He, but look how Jesus responds to the problem that they arrive. He looks at them and he says, you give them something to eat. Well, that's an interesting response, Jesus. They're like, did, did you not hear us? There's a lot of people. Jesus responds to the problem by offering his disciples a challenge. How do the disciples respond? They said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish. Unless we're to go and buy food for all these people. I, I don't know if there's sarcasm there. It feels like there might be a little bit. Like, what, you expect us to go buy food for 5,000 people? 
And then the verse notes, there are about 5,000 men, which means there was probably likely more than that, than just the 5,000. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups about 50 each. And they did so and had them all sit down. So Jesus essentially looks at his disciples, you feed them. They're like, we don't, we don't have the resources. This problem's beyond our ability. Now imagine, these are guys who just got back from exercising demons and healing people. And suddenly Jesus says like, hey, why don't you help feed these people? And they're like, ah, too much. Sorry, Jesus, can't do that. It's a little bit beyond my ability. And I love Jesus' response. He's like, well, why don't you have everybody sit down, watch me work, right? This is what he does. And then he says in verse 16, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. So Jesus responds by providing food for the people. Now, there's a whole bunch going on in this story, but there's a couple things I want to draw your attention to out of the context that we saw at the beginning. The questions that linger over the text is, who is Jesus and what does this have to do with being a follower or a disciple of him? What are the lessons to be learned? So the first question, who is Jesus? Well, the way that Luke tells this story and this miracle of Jesus' provision for these 5,000, likely more people, is to highlight specifically the reality that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, what's interesting about this miracle is it's the only miracle of Jesus that's actually in all four Gospels. Every single Gospel author uses this miracle in the way they tell the story of Jesus. And I think the reason that they do that is because this story draws in an incredible way a whole bunch of themes of promises out of the Old Testament to highlight the identity and reality of Jesus. Remember, the Jews were waiting for the Messiah to come. The Messiah is just the Hebrew word for the anointed one, right? The anointed promised king that God was going to send to establish God's rule and reign on the earth to bring righteousness and justice, to deal with sin and all the brokenness that existed in our world. And so they were awaiting for this anointed king to arrive. And in the Old Testament, there were allusions and promises to the nature and reality of this king. And in this story, three of those are brought into crystal clear focus by the way Luke tells the story. One of the promises of the Messiah coming was that he was going to be like Moses. Moses was the leader who led Israel out of uh, Egypt and out of slavery and moved them to the banks of the promised land. He was the, one of the high figures in Israelite history. And Moses had promised that one day God would send a prophet like him to bring deliverance to God's people once again and actually provide deliverance for all people. Now, one of the key elements in the story of Moses is Exodus chapter 16, where God provide, provided food for his people when they were in the middle of the wilderness. They leave Egypt, they're in the middle of the wilderness, they get hungry, naturally. They're like, uh, we're in the middle of the desert, what are we going to eat here, Moses? And Moses is like, uh, I'm not sure, let me pray about it. Goes to God, God essentially says, listen, I'm going to provide manna, which is like this flaky-like bread that's going to come to you each morning and provide the food you need to sustain yourself while you're in a desolate desert place. What's interesting is, as Luke tells this story, he notes in verse 12 that where are they? They're in a desolate place. They're in the wilderness. 
and they don't have food. Well, that sounds awfully familiar. And what does Jesus do? He prays and provides them food. They, they would have clicked with this a meeting. Oh, Luke's trying to tell us a new Moses is here. One of the other illusions. One of the key chief prophets in the Old Testament was a prophet named Elisha. Elisha followed the ministry of another key prophet named Elijah. Elijah did some incredible stuff. Elijah ultimately ascended into heaven. And what is significant in the story in 2 Kings is that Elisha, his predecessor, no, successor, that's the right word, successor, the one who came after him, was given a double blessing to continue God's work as his prophet. Now, What the Old Testament then began to clarify and Jews came to believe is that when God would move his Messiah again, he was going to send Elijah as the predecessor of the new Messiah and that this new Messiah would come as a type of Elisha to bring God's truth, to bring deliverance, to be the one that God promised. What's interesting is in 2 Kings chapter 4, there's a story about the prophet Elisha where there's a hundred men at his house and he tells his servant, hey, I've got 20 loaves of barley. Can you feed these men? And the servant comes to him and says like, no, that's not enough food for all these people. And Elisha blesses the food and essentially feeds all of these men with an insubstantial amount of bread. So when Luke tells a story about Jesus essentially going to his disciples and say, hey, see all these people, you feed them. And they're like, we can't do that. And Jesus says, well, I can. Luke's trying to draw your attention. Jesus is the new Elisha. He's the greater one. He's the Messiah. Third image, just in case you didn't get the first two, right? Third image, Isaiah chapter 25. And if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to turn over there with me because I want you to see this promise that God makes about the Messiah to come, his anointed king from the prophet Isaiah, several hundred years before Jesus shows up on the scene. This is what it says in Isaiah chapter 25, verses 6 through 9. God says this, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for, note this, all peoples, a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. This is one of the key passages. There's a couple other along with it that the, that the Jews understood that when God send his, sent his Messiah, that he would establish what it says, a banquet, a feast for all peoples. It came to known as the Messianic feast. And the idea was that the Messiah would show up and begin to provide food in such a way that it would actually satisfy not only our physical hunger, but our spiritual hunger. That he would deal with death. He would deal with sin. He would deal with brokenness and he would save and rescue people from that and bring them back into relationship with God and into his kingdom. So when Jesus shows up on the scene, sits down with 5,000 random people and then begins to provide food for them, this image would immediately have come to mind. Oh, this is the Messiah providing the feast. This is 
a taste of that greater reality that God had promised, right? This little miracle where we think, oh, Jesus provided from food, food people is actually opening up to us a greater identity that Jesus is in fact the promise anointed king that God had said he would send. The one to deal with death that plagues us all the one to deal with sin, the one to rescue us from our hunger and bring us into the presence of God and satisfy our hearts. And you know how we know that this is the key, one of the key points of this passage? Because the disciples get the image. Look at verse 18. This is the passage that follows. Now, it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him and he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that the one of the prophets of old has risen. Now, where did we hear those three things? Oh, in Herod's statement right before the passage, right? Herod goes, well, is he John the Baptist? Is he Elijah? Who is he? I want to figure it out. So Jesus asked him, and the disciples repeat this. Oh, maybe you're John the Baptist. Maybe you're Elijah. But look what Jesus says. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ or the Messiah of God. You see, the disciples got what the miracle was ultimately about. That Jesus was, in fact, the greater Moses. That Jesus was, in fact, the greater Elisha. That Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah who was coming to establish the banquet for all people so that they could be invited in to salvation by God and into his kingdom. And when Jesus asked them, who do you say I am? They give the core confession of a disciple of Jesus. You are the Christ. You're the anointed one. You're the promised king of God. And so this whole meal is revealing the nature of Jesus. That he is, in fact, the one who has the power to save. You could say it this way, that Jesus is never too powerless to provide for those who need him. And who are those who need him? All of us. We all need a savior. We all are stuck in spiritual sickness and in hunger. All of us pine and long to be reconnected with the God who created us and his purpose and identity for us. And the nature of this miracle is to reveal Jesus is the power of God revealed so that you can be saved. That's his nature. And to be invited into his kingdom, to his banquet, is simply to put your faith and trust in him. To eat the fish that day was to anticipate the greater messianic banquet that is to come. We don't have time to dig all the way into it today, but if you get to the end of Revelation in 19 and 20, it's a picture of the feast that's going to come where we will sit down at the marriage supper of the Lamb and we will eat with Jesus. We will experience the fullness of our salvation where we see him as the true Savior. Jesus' power in this passage is contrasted with all the powers around us. Think of it. It's contrasted with Herod's power. It's contrasted with the disciples' power. And what do you see? Their power is insufficient, but Jesus' power isn't. He is, in fact, Lord and Savior. And so his identity is revealed in this story. But not only his identity, his ability to provide for us and what our hearts long for. You see, the reality is Jesus is not only never too powerless 
to provide for those who need him. Jesus is also never too limited to satisfy all who hunger for him. That not only is he savior, but he is provider. He gives what we need, even when we're powerless to provide for ourselves. I mean, the disciples get it. They're like, if it's just me, I have no ability to provide for these people. I can't even provide my own dinner, let alone 5,000 people. And Jesus responds by saying, well, here, I can. I'm not limited in my resources. I'm not limited in my ability to provide what you need, not only physically, but ultimately spiritually. It's interesting that Jesus notes in this passage, right, that he takes these five loaves and these two fishes. He looks up to heaven in verse 16 and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. That word that they use in, uh, for gave in the original language in Greek is uh, in the imperfect tense, which you're like, why does that even matter? Imperfect tenses uh, con- con- uh, communicate continual action in the past. So it's, it wasn't that Jesus just gave, it's Jesus was continually giving to his disciples to distribute. You see, I think the problem is a lot of times we have this image in our head when it comes to this miracle. Jesus had these people sit down and then he like snapped his fingers and everybody just had food before them. And it was like, oh, cool, Jesus provided food. But that's not the image, right? The image is Jesus actually goes to his disciples first and he says, okay, you go out, you break these people into groups of 50, then you're going to come back to me. I'm going to give you some food to go distribute to the group. Once that's done, you're going to come back to me and I'm going to give you more, right? That's the image, that idea of continually giving. So the disciples, think of this rhythm. This is the disciples' reality. They're coming to Jesus. He gives them bread and fish, whatever container they have, basket. They take it to the group. They give it to them. And then they go back to Jesus and they get more. And they go back. And you have to imagine, just imagine the disciples for a minute. Like the first time they get some like food from Jesus, they're like, okay, I guess, all right, cool. I'll take this to one group. Like here, here, you guys have food. And then they're like, go back to Jesus. And they're like, wait, there's, there's more here. Like what, where did that come from? Okay, cool. And they're like, you know, probably by like the fourth or fifth group, they're like starting to get of it. Like how does Jesus have this endless supply of fish and loaves that he just keeps giving out to people? And this natural give, coming to Jesus, giving, coming, what they see is Jesus never runs out of the ability to provide for them. He's not limited in the miracle and what he does for them. You see, I think one of the things that we have to recognize where the disciples are challenged in this passage is, do we really believe that Jesus has enough for us? I mean, I think it's interesting in verse 17, what's left over from the distribution of all the bread and fish? Look at it. And what was left over picked up what? 12 baskets. Well, that's an interesting object lesson, Jesus. You told 12 guides to provide food. They said you can't. And yet somehow you meticulously leave 12 baskets left for them. Think Jesus is trying to teach them a lesson? Like, hey guys, If you'll just trust me, I've got more than enough to handle what I'm asking you to do. I'm not going to run out on you. 
There's not going to be a moment where I'm all of a sudden like, whoop, I, I don't know what happened. Nope. I only got enough food for 48 groups. You see, I think a lot of times when it comes to our spiritual lives, whether we follow Jesus or not, a lot of us still have a scarcity mindset. We're born into a scarce world. And because of that, when it comes to Jesus, we think somehow we've got to fight and claw and achieve and do whatever we can to just get enough. Because when it comes to God's love or when it comes to purpose or meaning, when it comes to satisfaction, when it comes to all this stuff, what we think is there's just a finite amount of this out there and I've got to figure out how I can get my part of it. So I've got to to figure out how to like get ahead of the group. I got to figure out how I can figure out what I have to piece together. I got to work hard, achieve, figure all this out. And then maybe, maybe I can find this fleeting glimpse of satisfaction or purpose or meaning. Or we think maybe only a few people get that, right? There's only limited people who ever achieve that level of satisfaction in their life or that level of meaning and purpose, But what Jesus reminds his disciples is, no, I don't have a scarcity mentality. I have an abundance mentality. I actually have more than what you need. More. Not just enough. Not just the right amount. I have more than what you need. Which means for us, there's always more of God to satisfy our hunger. God is an infinite supply of spiritual food. There is not a moment where he shows up on the scene and is like, sorry, don't got any left. But the problem is we've we've so birthed because of our brokenness and sin, we've so adopted this scarcity mindset that we just don't think Jesus has enough. We're like, oh, maybe Jesus has enough grace for them, but he doesn't have enough grace for me. Maybe Jesus has enough love for them, but I'm not sure if he has enough love for me. And what Jesus is trying to notice his disciples is, no, I have enough for everyone. For everyone. I mean, that's the whole point, right? What's verse 17 say? It's my favorite part. And they who ate, who ate? They, are you looking at your Bible? No, maybe? They all ate. All of them. Every single person had their needs met in that moment. Because Jesus wants to remind you, I have more than enough to provide for every need you have. I'm the only one who can satisfy that hunger of your soul. Because here's the reality, friends. In your life, you know, because you've sought, you've sought to try to find meaning in other things. We all do it. Some of us, we try to find meaning in people and relationships. We think if I find the next right partner, if I find the next opportunity, if I have enough of this, if I have enough in this relationship, enough sex, enough whatever it is, then I can find that deeper purpose. Maybe if I just find the one, I'll find that meaning in life that drives me and brings everything into balance. I'll find that satisfaction. Some of us look for it in possessing. And if I could just have enough money, if I can get to the next job, if I get the next promotion, if I acquire the next thing, if I can move into that neighborhood, then, then life will be okay. I mean, others always look for it in power. If I can somehow gain more control, more influence, more ability to lead, then life will have its purpose. And some of us look forward in prestige. If I can get enough 
followers, if I can get enough people to pay attention to me, if I can get enough likes, maybe then life will matter. And you know what the problem is? Yeah, it'll matter for a minute, but it'll leave you hungry at the end. You see, when we feast on the things of the world, we're left unsatisfied. They taste good. They seem like they fulfill, but they ultimately don't. And you know it. Because you've tried it. But what Jesus reminds us in this passage, and the good news that I want to proclaim to you today, is that Jesus is enough to satisfy the hunger of your heart. He's the only one that you can come to time and time again and find purpose and meaning and life. He's the one that makes sense of your suffering. He's the one that empowers you through the struggle. He's the one that can show you how God created you, what he created you for, and how your life can matter in his larger story. And he doesn't just have enough to provide to get you To this point, he's got more than enough. More than enough. And so the invitation from this passage is for all of us in this meal is to say, will you trust Jesus as your satisfaction? Will you stake your life on what he can provide? I'll close with this. Last week, I told my church this, but I want to share this with you guys. Last Friday, I was... um, I was driving in the car. Fridays are my day off, and so usually I like to work out in the morning, and then um, one of my favorite rituals on Friday is I like to go get a cup of coffee, and then I like to go walk around Target and look for deals, right? (laughs) I know there's some ladies in this house that can say amen to that, right? So the rest of you guys, you can judge me, right? But that's my thing. So get my coffee, and I'm driving to Target, and uh, I'm listening to a song, and uh, the song's uh, As You Find Me by Hillsong United. And there's just this line, you love me as you find me, right? And actually, there's another line where it says, I was yours before I was not. And I'm just driving in the car, and and I'm overwhelmed, literally brought to the point of tears. Man, even as I think about it, it it takes me back. Just overwhelmed with, with like this love that God loves me so much, because I know what a mess I am. Like, I know how many times I've sought to try and find my satisfaction in something else and failed. And yet in this moment, I'm just stuck. God still loves me. He still welcomes me. He still cares about me. He still, there's something, he just loves me. And he doesn't love me because I'm perfect or because I achieve. He just loves me, period, because Jesus just loves me. And I'm just like overwhelmed in that moment. Like all of a sudden, my soul just feels as full as it's felt. Like it's one of those transcendent moments where I'm like, man, if this is what eternity is, like I can't wait. If my soul feels this satisfied in this moment, I can't wait until my soul feels like this forever and ever. I can't wait till I get to sit down with Jesus, see him face to face, eat a good meal, and just be filled up with his love. I'm like, I could stay in this moment forever. But literally, almost in the next breath, I started weeping. Because it just dawned on me, there are so many people who don't know that love. There are some of you in this room and who are watching my, me online right now who you don't have that sort of satisfaction. 
You've never felt the sort of love that fills your soul to the brim to overflowing. And you're still trying to find it. You're seeking it in your job. You're seeking it in your relationships. You're digging and scratching at the earth, trying to feed yourself on whatever you can to hope maybe somebody will love me. Maybe somebody will accept me. Maybe somebody will satisfy me. Maybe I can find my purpose. And what I'm here to tell you this morning is Jesus is what you're looking for. He's here. He can fill you up till your life is transformed not just now, but forever. He's the only one that can satisfy. He has what you need. And my invitation today is that you can trust him and follow him. I pray you do that. Let me pray for you. Jesus, you're so good. You're so good. And I'm just so grateful for your love, your transforming love, your ability to provide your grace. And how amazing that you would sit in this wilderness and provide food for 5,000 people. But how even more amazing that one day you'd go to that cross and you'd provide salvation for anyone that would come to you. That what our hearts need, you have given. Praise you, Savior. Praise you, Messiah. Praise you, King, for what you've done. Help us to trust more deeply in who you are. Help us to trust more fully in what you have done for us. Help us to be satisfied in you. Even as we prepare to receive communion and sing, would your spirit just work in our hearts? Help us to trust more deeply in the satisfaction of our Savior, we pray. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.